When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. White Sox fans, welcome to the Dish Deluxe. It is volume three. <laughs> Once again, joined with our... White Sox historian, you see his byline on our pages every single day of the year. It's Mark Liptak, and we have a special treat for you. It is near and dear to my heart as a White Sox fan. My first season as a White Sox fan, my first season going to a game. Let's run down just a little bit of the facts of this season as an overview, and then we're going to dig into some of the details of this wonderful, wonderful year. This team, well, let me give you the banner. Come on. Let's not move around here. Let's just throw it out there. Boom. It is the Southside Hitmen in 1977. This is the only team between 1973 and 1981 to even be better than 500. They're the best team, as it turns out, in White Sox history between the years of 1966 and 1982. This team ran had a straight run in first place from July 1st to August 11th. Doesn't happen a ton in White Sox history. It has happened, but it doesn't happen very often. Uh, the reason why we are choosing today, uh, July 31st, to uh, run this history podcast and the reason why we are celebrating the 1977 White Sox team beyond just my bias for it, because you'll probably find that like every other month we're going to talk about the 77 White Sox, is at this point on July 31st, the White Sox were 25 games over 500. That was their high mark of the season. Of course, it got a little scary from there. Probably in the second half of this podcast, we'll discuss what happened from there. But also something you might not know, at 22-6, and six, this is the best July team in White Sox history. So we figured let's let's find something to do for July. Hey, look at this. 1977, just right around the corner for me. Let's talk 1977. So, Mark, a season you remember as well. Yes, uh, sir. As vividly uh, as, as I do, although, of course, I had the wondrous eyes of a first-time uh, uh, visitor how to old, How old Park. were you? I would have been uh, eight years old in 1977 okay. season. The very first game I saw, July, uh, uh, June 4th, Richie Zisk. Puts a home run on the roof. And of course, when you see something like that, when you see uh, the natural moment like that, you know, you're hooked on baseball for life because the sure. ball just disappears and you say, Holy cow, this is a pretty cool sport. So yeah, they they hooked me. I'll I will get my revenge on the White Sox for that, Mark. But for now, we can celebrate the romance of 1977. And again, you as a fan, uh, at the time, and even now looking back on that team, you know, your your overall and your first uh, impressions of it. First off, Brett, it's mind-blowing for me that that was 46 years ago. 
Yeah. That's <laughs> like, wow. <laughs> that was also the last year I was home for the summer. I was going to the University of Kentucky. And I was working at Federal Express at Midway Airport, which was really, that was a really good job. You know, just making sure the office was running. I actually spent a lot of that summer painting the inside of the hangar. <laughs> Not all the way up because, you know, I couldn't get all, we didn't have a scissor lift, so Good. I couldn't get all the way. But it was like <laughs> the first eight or 10 feet off the ground. So I spent a lot of time doing that and running packages up I-294 to O'Hare when they were needed. But uh, I was able to listen to a lot of games. I was able to go to a lot of games. That team is well-beloved in the hearts of certain White Sox fans, a generation, because they came out of nowhere. They were not picked any higher than fourth, to the best of my knowledge. They were coming off a terrible 1976. Yeah. People thought this team was basically thrown together, which it was. A lot of bargain basement free agent signings, cast-offs, injury-prone guys. And yet the baseball gods looked down on them and said, guys, you're going to have one of those years. They hit 192 home runs, which was the team record at the time. They were in first place, like you said, for over a month. They wound up winning 90 games. Granted, they didn't get to the playoffs. They didn't get to the World Series. The Kansas City Royals, after August the 1st, went absolutely out of their minds. They had like a 16 or an 18-game winning streak. They had an eight-game winning streak. They won something like 32 out of 36 games. So the White Sox were not going to catch them. But that was still a, a wonderful year. Everybody seemed to have a lot of fun. I mean, the ballpark was yeah. packed every night. The players were getting into it. Uh, I saw a quote from Lamar Johnson. And, and the White Sox, frankly, were a little bit arrogant. Uh, <laughs> Johnson said that they used to take, you know, play home run derby in batting practice. But unless you hit it into the upper deck, it wouldn't count. <laughs> yeah, so that's they arrogant. were a little bit, a little bit arrogant. <laughs> but man, they could hit. They had ten guys with at least ten home runs. They had nine guys with at least fifty RBIs. They scored over 800 runs that year. I think that was one of the all-time best single-season records for the White Sox. It was just a fun year. It was great. Yeah. Yeah. Let's not forget, too, offensively, it's easy to say, oh, well, you know, you, you look, you, you fast forward a few years ahead and say, well, yeah, the, the White Sox sort of became a home run team uh, at Comiskey. Well, the, the plate was still where it was. It was still a mm -hmm. big park to be uh, putting those home runs out and producing runs to that degree, uh, especially coming off of a 1976 season where the White Sox really could couldn't do it aside from one sustained winning streak really couldn't do anything so the yeah. turnaround was pretty remarkable and certainly 90 wins is nothing to shake a stick at that's uh tied for 19th best in white Sox history there's only 20 teams in white Sox history so about a sixth a little less than a, a sixth of the teams in white Sox history won 90 games um still pretty remarkable uh 31st best winning percentage not quite as good but um still upper echelon team and as I try to intro, sort of the, a, a bit of a um, an oasis team. Not to say that all those teams in that rough decade there uh, surrounding 77 were bad. There's a 500 team in there. They weren't all god-awful like, say, a 76 team. But 
the the best of that stretch, and which was a really bumpy stretch too, because you've got the uh, you know you've got Postic Allen, you've got the beginning of Vec, which was you know that that whole run was you know somewhat rough shot. It all came together for one year, uh, and then sort of transitioning into the the new ownership, they were trying to sort of put things together. So yeah, it really sort of stands as a beacon of you know the competitiveness. Um, sure. and, and excitement because because you're right. I mean, the fondness people have for that season, having watched it or lived through it, is, is probably might not even be commensurately, you know, like a- accurate. You know, it's a 91 team. Uh, they they didn't go down to the wire, but as you say, between you know, whether it's the uniforms, the the ragtag collection, you know, Bill Vec, eight thousand different uh, promotions, stacking beer beer cases and all that. Uh, it, it was really fun every time you walked into the park without any real setbacks. I could. You know, like a disco demolition or or horrific horrific uh, injuries or controversial trades uh it really was just sort of a, a good time summer and uh, that's something that you know must have resonated with you again you know being your your last you know summer home that was you know an opportunity to probably get to the park a little bit and just follow the team in a way that actually made it rewarding instead of the struggle it could be i know we were just coming off of uh, you know dick allen where the team was competitive there but you know, 75, 76, you had to reset your expectations. I uh, after, you know, after 75, we were just happy to have a team. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because of all the rumors, the White Sox are moving to Seattle. They're moving to New Orleans. They're moving to Denver. There was even some talk they may go to Toronto before the expansion team came in. You know, so given everything, that was one of those watershed years where you just enjoyed going to the park every day or as much as possible and just sat back and just kind of watched in amazement as these guys just hit home runs and just hammered pitchers left and right. Then you had Nancy mm-hmm. Faust with the na na hey hey. And it was a fun summer. I mean, you can't yeah. put it any better than that. It was a fun summer. Yeah. And it ended too uh, soon. We'll, yeah, it did. Uh we'll um we'll get to the pitching. Um because that should probably be addressed in a secondary fashion. We'll do that after the break, but let's talk a little bit about the hitting because as you already point out, incredible run producing team offense that really came from unexpected places. Even a Chet Lemon who grew into a star, this was really his, his breakout year. Uh, and of course, uh, plenty of the Renta players really coming through mm-hmm. in a way that would not have been, been anticipated. Uh, when you think about that pretty prodigious, prodigious lineup, uh, who, who to you is sort of the, the key point there, the, maybe the most important uh, guy in that lineup uh, overall that maybe helped make a difference or kickstart this team? Richie Zisk. People forget Richie Zisk was a very good player with Pittsburgh yeah. before yeah. he came over to the White Sox. So he Having was not Roberto Clemente was shoes in the, the barrel. And Oscar mm-hmm. Gamble was a solid player in yeah. the years that he was in the American League. So to me, to answer your question, Brett, it would be Eric Soderholm. And the reason I say that is because Soderholm completely missed the 1976 season with a severe knee injury. I interviewed Eric. That's one of the five guys off of that team that I've interviewed. And he told me the story. He and his wife were in Minnesota and they were looking at property to buy to try and build a home on. This was before the 76 season. And it was in a field. It was full of weeds, tall grass. He stepped in a hole that he never saw and completely destroyed his knee, among other things. He broke some ribs. It was a very serious injury. He completely missed the 1976 season for the Twins. 
he was one of the first proponents to use the Nautilus system. In fact, he became a spokesman for it. Yeah. Built his knee back up. The White Sox showed interest. He signed with the White Sox, and he wound up being the comeback player of the year with, I think it was 25 or 26 home runs. He hit like 280. That was one of those, again, those unexpected yeah. miracles that contributed <laughs> because now you've got three guys that are really serious long ball threats mm. in Ziss, Gamble, and Soderholm in the middle of the lineup. To go along with the auxiliary pieces, I mean, Ralph Gar, Chet Lemon, Jim Spencer, George Orta, Brian Downing, Jim Essien, the White Sox had the best catching combination in the league. All of those guys hit over 10 home runs, but they weren't the type that were going to hit 20, 25, 30 home runs. Mm -hmm. Soderholm gave you that third option. I think he was, I think he was the key. Okay. And let's use that as an excuse to pull back because he was the consummate, not the only, but the consummate uh, rent-a-player. Now, this was an innovation born of some desperation. Bill Vec did not have the funds to compete in a free agency era. Uh, so his free agency uh, picks came from the um, bargain dollar store and the bargain bin for sure. And of course, it's been credited as... Um, you know, innovative or uh, innovative or clever, which is probably at least somewhat undo uh, undo because you know what choice did they have? This is the way right. he had to do it. Um, smart in that you're attracting guys who need a place to play and it's sort of uh, who are willing to take and can thrive on prove me deals. Um, even Steve Stone, who we'll talk about in the the yep. second half. Um, but you know, the innovation obviously it didn't it. All of the luck of the innovation came in 77 and 78, where they did try to just run it out again. Uh, it obviously did fall flat. It did not work. Um, so tell me a little bit about the the, the rent-a-player, you know, scenario mm -hmm. and, you know, the, the cleverness or the creativity of it. That's really an interesting point, Brett, because depending on who you talk to, Bill Vec either couldn't or wouldn't go into the high echelon free agents. I'm talking about guys like Reggie Jackson, Don Baylor, sure. Bobby Gritch. And the only reason I say that is because Rich Lindbergh, the White Sox historian and author, and Jimmy Pearsaw both told me that Vec actually did, if you look at his investors, he had some of the richest people in the United States as part of his minority investors. But I was told that Bill had promised them that after the initial financial call to get the White Sox, he would not go back to them for any additional money. And he promised that he would always turn them a profit. Hmm. So it depends on who you believe as to whether he couldn't yeah. or wouldn't get the free agents. But more to your point, he figured these guys are going to be playing for a big free agent contract. Hmm. So they're going to play hard every night. That's why he made the deal for Richie Zisk. That's why he made the deal for Oscar Gamble. He signed Eric Soderholm. He signed Steve Stone. In fact, I think Stone was the first free agent signing in yes. White Sox history. Yep. And it was luck. I mean, luck is part of the game. You know that. And that was one of those years where, again, the baseball god said, you guys are going to do really well. And, again, you got guys like Zisk and Gamble playing for a big contract for 1978, they brought it every night. And there was a spirit of camaraderie with that team. Guys 
guys, a lot of these guys were cast offs and they knew it, mm-hmm. you know, and all of the people that I've spoke with, I've interviewed Chet Lemon, your favorite all time White Sox player and Eric Dean. Soderholm and Greg Pryor <laughs> and Wilbur Wood and the late Bart Johnson. And they all told me basically the same theme. Nobody expected us to do anything, but once we got started, the team got really close. We had a lot of fun and we started playing well. And part of that, again, was the rent a player. Part of that was the bargain basement free agents. Part of that was luck. Luck plays a part of the game. Let's uh, let's talk uh, before we break. Let's talk about a couple events of April. Let's start with the intriguing one. And Bilvek was often mm, colorful in addressing players. I mean, he he not only chose not to or couldn't participate at free agency, he'd, he'd often be pretty derisive of the whole idea, like he wouldn't want Dave Winfield playing for the White Sox anyway, stuff like right. that. Um, and obviously, he he did did to some degree ran Bucky Dent out of town. He yes. was not really complimentary yes. of Bucky Dent. But that trade comes right on the cusp of the season. It obviously brings in Oscar Gamble, which ends up being a huge one-year rental, uh, leads the team in, in home runs. Uh, by all accounts, pretty good guy to have on the squad. Uh, but there's an intriguing aspect of that trade I'd like you to talk a little bit about because it could have even been so much, as good as it was, and it was a really good trade. It uh, could have been even better. The comment that Bill Vec made, and that deal, you're right, was made almost literally as the White Sox were breaking yeah. camp to head to Toronto to open the season. Vec was quoted as saying he would trade Bucky Dent even up for any shortstop in the American League. I was a little surprised by that because that's not the kind of thing you want to say when you're trying to make a trade. No, way to drive up the price. <laughs> but he said it, and the Yankees traded Gamble, Cash, and a young minor league pitcher named Lamar Hoyt, who would later go on to have some success with the White Sox. But I think you're referring to this. Mm. The deal could have included Ron Guidry. (laughs) That was the original deal, Louisiana Lightning. And I got to know Ron when I was working in television in Louisiana. He was originally part of the deal. Steinbrenner was going to trade him and was talked out of it by Billy Martin. And I think that year in 77, Guidry was like 27 and three. He won the Cy Young, you know, pitched the Yankees to the World Series. Now I'm not saying he would have won 27 games with the White Sox, but the guy had an outstanding career, had a blazing fastball, despite the fact that he was not very big physically. So yeah, he was originally part of the deal and Steinbrenner got talked out of it by Billy Martin, so blame Billy. Yeah, thanks, Billy. Um, okay, well, and you referred to the other aspect of April. We got to talk about the very first game ever played in the snowstorm. Uh, first American, first American League game outside of the country uh, in the snow. I can recall, Mark. I'm guessing it was opening day. I it came was. home from school and started watching the game and saw the footage. Uh, of the snow and thought, what is going? I mean, listen, I'm we're we're in Chicago, Mark. We're not. It's not like a shock that it could it could snow in April, but you're not really supposed to be playing baseball. So uh, that opening series, the uh, opening game, they lost, but uh, even early on, they were showing flashes of the power. You know, Zisk had at least a home run in that series. So right, uh, right out of the gate, you know, they were they were they were flexing. There is a famous photograph that I have in my library of Jack Brohammer. 
and it's before the game. Jack was one of the White Sox infielders. Sure. And he's standing on a pair of catcher's shin guards flipped inside out, you know, acting like skis. And he's got a couple of baseball bats in his hand like ski poles. And he's pretending to ski at -hmm. Exhibition Stadium before the game. And they wound up clearing the field, but it was brutally cold. It was snowing. Zisk hit a home run, a mammoth home run to center field in the first inning. Bill Singer was the Toronto pitcher. Toronto wound up winning that game. You're right. A guy named Doug Alt hit two home runs. The White Sox then won the next day in sunny weather, I might add. So it (laughs) snowed opening day. And then 24 hours later, it was bright sunshine in Toronto. But that started it. The White Sox the White Sox had a ton of hits in that opening series, and you just had a feeling this is okay. I mean, it's 40 degrees out, and these guys are still hitting the hell out of the ball. You know, maybe this is going to lead to something. And it, it did. I mean, they started to get that momentum going. Uh, let's take a break, Mark. Uh, we'll talk about the heat up of July when it really got fun. Uh, sure. We'll talk about after July, but first we'll address the pitching because that's the the you know the part that's easier not to talk about because some of those guys might as well have been playing sixteen inch <laughs> softball. We will address that after the break. Give us a minute. We'll be back on the Fans First Sports Network. Hey, White Sox fans, Brett Valentini here, lucky enough to host the Dish Deluxe. It's our history podcast. We're just getting rolling now. This is edition number three. We are addressing the 1977 White Sox, not just because of personal host bias, but because they are the best team in July in White Sox history. They remain the best. 22 wins in 28 games. That's not bad. That is going to get you pushing into first place and keep you in first place, which is exactly what happened uh, with the White Sox at some point here. Uh, heading into uh, even prior, I believe, to July, they had made it into first place, but they held first place throughout July and into August. At some point, this team was, I'm sure they couldn't even explain how they were doing it. Uh, they were just winning. And there there must have been some tangible magic surrounding this team midseason because they just weren't losing. No, I mean, they got, I, I said that at the beginning, Brett, they got on a roll. They started to believe. And guys, again, were a little upset. I mean, these are cast-offs. These are guys teams did not want. Guys coming off injuries, serious injuries like Eric Soderholm, guys like Zisk and Gamble, and Steve Stone playing for, you know, potential free agent contracts for 1978. July was the month. It opened with a four-game sweep of Minnesota at Comiskey Park, which moved the White Sox in the first place. I was actually at that Sunday doubleheader, and I remember two things about that. First off, your all-time hero, Chet Lemon, (laughs) had one of the greatest catches I have ever seen. Uh, And in 2002, WGN, after a White Sox game, had a a seven-and-a-half-minute vignette, a retrospective of the 77 team, and they showed part of that catch. In the second game of that doubleheader, that Sunday doubleheader, the Twins had two men on base, and one of the Twins players hit a drive into the gap in left center field. Chet sprinted, broke to his right and back, caught the ball across his body, because remember he was right-handed, about knee high, and slammed face first into the wire screen that separated the picnic area from the playing field. And he held on to the ball. 
And if you remember the show, The Baseball Bunch, hosted by Johnny Bench, yeah. Chet was a guest one time, and they showed that clip because Chet mm -hmm. told me that he wished he was able to get the video footage of that. That was one of the best catches I've ever seen. So I remember that. And then at the end of the game, the park was full. It was sold out. Everybody was yelling, we're number one in sequence after they had swept the Twins in the four-game series. So you had that to open July. You had a huge series right before the All-Star break with the Red Sox. Uh, and I was at the Saturday night game the day before the last game, which was Sunday. Then you had the All-Star break. And I, was, I wanted to tell you this story about Fred Lynn and Carl Yastrzemski. We're sitting in the left field stands, left field lower deck, myself and some of the guys from high school that I knew. And there was a pitching change. Again, the park is packed. It's full. And my friend starts the chant, Boston sucks. I swear within a minute, the entire left field stands in unison was chanting Boston sucks. What was funny about it was Fred Lynn was in center field. He walks over toward left center. Carl Yastrzemski's in left field. He walks over toward left center, and they're just kind of talking during the warm-ups and the pitching change. I could not tell what they were saying, but they both had smiles on their faces. And maybe it was naivety on my part, but I don't think they were derisive toward White Sox fans. I think they were both saying, man, isn't this great? It's a full house. We're both in first place. This is a pennant race. The fans are into it. This is great. Yeah. So I remember that. Yeah. And then, of course, the Kansas City series, which was, Oof. wow. I mean, they win the first three games of the four-game set. They come from behind every time in that Friday night, Saturday night, and the first game Sunday of the doubleheader. They've got a six-and-a-half game lead going into that second game. Kansas City won the second game. Hal McRae taunted the White Sox fans with a slow trot around after he had a home run. He tipped his hat to the crowd. Then uh, White Sox fans responded by throwing garbage at him. But after that, like I said, the Royals just got hotter than the sun. They won something like 32 out of their next 37, 38 games. They were not going to be caught. But July was the month. And Steve Stone always had an interesting comment. In the second game of that doubleheader, manager Bob Lemon right. gave some guys a rest. And Stone mm -hmm. always felt that the White Sox should have gone for the jugular, put their best lineup out there, maybe sweep the Royals in four, and instead of being five and a half in front, you're seven and a half in front. Although, again, if Kansas City is going to win 32 out of 37, 38 games, it's not going to matter. But right. that, that yeah, last the, series with Kansas City was unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, what, what Stone says, is, I mean, it could be just uh, uh, the Monday morning quarterbacking of it, but he was there and feeling it, and they they are up five and a half, even after uh, the setback of uh, mm -hmm. uh, losing the nightcap. But then they start August, even though they're still in first place, um, and, or they remain in first place, they lose six to seven. Um, th there's something about that. I mean, there there's something that resonates in what Steve says in terms of the flatness, perhaps, because... Um, some air got taken out of them. Maybe they were just, maybe at that point they were gasping because they had sprinted through the end of July. 
but yeah, coming out into August in first place, trying to maintain your position and seeing your lead, uh, basically five games get trimmed off your lead because not only is Kansas City chasing you, and Texas is in the mix as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, you, you know, you're not you're not coming through and uh so that was not the best well, way to uh sort of finish out uh the, the first place part of part of that may have been because again hal mccray was pretty vocal about this the royals felt that the white Sox coming out for curtain calls was disrespectful and that always that always time. got me upset, and it still gets me upset simply because. And I understand where Hal's coming from. I've run around. I've been around athletes all my life. You use what you have to for motivation, just as Michael Jordan. But the white, and I, I again in the interviews that I've done, some of the White Sox guys were a little hesitant. There was a big team meeting discussing the curtain calls. But the point is, when you've got 40,000 people standing, clapping, screaming, yelling, sure. they want you to come out. Yeah. The game simply could not continue. If you're an umpire, there's nothing you can do. <laughs> Whether the White Sox yeah. players wanted to or not, they were going to come out because that's the only way the game could continue. It was not a matter of disrespect. Considering what happens today, it's tame. Back then, it was rather controversial. But I think it was simply the outpouring of love by White Sox fans for this team. They They weren't trying to show up the Royals or the Twins or the Brewers or anybody else. They wanted to extend the love for this team, this ragamuffin team that was lighting the league on fire for about six weeks had nothing to do with trying to show anybody up. Although the Royals use that for motivation. Yeah. They swept the White Sox. You were talking about in August, that huge series in Kansas city, they beat the White Sox three in a row. That was the series where Bart Johnson and Daryl Porter got into it. Uh, Bart of course had that bad back injury a few years earlier in a spring training game, he slipped a disc. He herniated a disc pitching against the Reds. He had back surgery. So in that first game, that Friday night, there's a ground ball down the first base line. Spencer gets it, flips it to Bart, who's covering first base, and Porter runs right into him, right smack in his back. Dick Hauser had to come between the two. And then, like Bart told me, later in that game, it was around the sixth inning, Bart is throwing his warm-up pitches. Porter's in the on-deck circle. Bart looks at him and says, do you want it now? (laughs) And then they went at it. Now, to be fair, we have to finish the story. Bart said that both Daryl Porter and George Brett came into the locker room afterwards and apologized. Bart also said that Daryl Porter's eyes were as big as half dollars. He said he was on something. (laughs) But, yeah, the Royals swept him in three. And again, they took off and the White Sox played around 500 ball the rest of the season, you know, and that that did it. And part of the problem, Brett, was, and this has been a constant thing for the White Sox for over 50 years, they either couldn't or wouldn't get the depth that they needed down the stretch. They got Steve Ranko from the Cubs, I believe, which was a godsend because he went 5-0. and 
But other than that, yeah. they really didn't have a lot of people, a lot of support, a lot of guys to try and help them down the stretch. It was basically their starting lineup, and that was it. And you talked yeah. about the pitching earlier. The pitching wasn't quite as bad as some people make it out. They did have four guys, mm -hmm. four starters winning double figures. They had six guys get saves, led by Laren Legros, who I think had 25. But, yeah, they needed more pitching help, and they just couldn't get it other than Steve Renko, and that contributed as well. Yeah, the pitching, I, I just did it. I just did in this podcast about my beloved team. As much as the hitting might get too much credit, the pitching gets distant away. That is not fair. They have a staff ERA of 425, which sounds which bad, is not bad. for the time. That's a 97 ERA plus. That's essentially league average for ERA. Mm -hmm. uh, you have got guys who are workhorses, Francisco Barrios with a workhorse season. If you look at war, and I know I put a little more weight on that than you do, but if you just look at the war production from the offense and the pitching, it's nearly equal. Pitching brought almost as much value to this team in terms of wins as the hitting. And you alluded to the guy, and we got to talk about him because this is, this is not just – I believe the best relief season in White Sox history or darn close. It is one of the best ever in baseball. Laren Legro had an extraordinary year working out of the bullpen. Maybe the traditional statistics do not say so, but he was the second best pitcher in the staff by war. He has a 4.2. He added 4.2 wins to this team alone. Tell me a little bit, because this is a guy uh, another one of these sort of cobbled together deals, mix and match deals, trying to strengthen and bolster the team that certainly wasn't anticipated to play out the way it did. But sure. this was a deal that really has to go down as one of the better ones, certainly one on one deals uh, in White Sox history. And he just had a magical 1977 season. I think they got him from the Cardinals, if, if memory serves. 25 saves, his ERA was like 2.1, 2.2, had a lot of strikeouts through a heavy pitch. Through a heavy fastball, sinking fastball, got a lot of ground balls. And he was the guy, he had, like I say, the 25 saves, and then he had Dave Hamilton, the lefty, out of the bullpen with nine. Again, they had six total guys who actually had a save that year. Mm -hmm. But it was Legro from the right side, Hamilton from the left side. Hamilton they got along with your guy, Chad Lemon, from <laughs> the Athletics for Stan Bonson. Another great deal pulled off by Roland. Good trade. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> A, a great deal pulled off by Roland, you know, and they, they were effective. Were they Rich Gossage or Terry Forster? No, but they did what they needed to do most of the time. Again, the pitching was not as bad, like you say, as people make it out to be. They weren't giving up eight runs a game. Now, occasionally they did, but the White Sox had scored <laughs> nine runs, so it yeah. wouldn't matter. Sure. Sure. But no, the, the pitching wasn't that bad. They just did not have a lot of depth. And the starters were, because that was the fashion at the time, were very reliable. Stone, Barrios, Ken Kravick, and Chris Knapp all started, if I remember right, over 30 games. And then you had uh, Steve Renko, who came later in the season in a trade. And again, he went 5-0 and and picked up another 10 or 12 starts. So they had a decent starting rotation. It wasn't spectacular, but they got the job done for the most part. Yeah. Um, 
yeah, it only makes fair for me. It's only fair for me to even, you know, correct the misnomer about this team. Obviously, the home runs and the curtain calls and the exploding scoreboard, you know, strikeout doesn't explode the scoreboard. So I get the tilt and I get the fact that the White Sox traditionally were never this type of team, rarely this type of team in terms mm-hmm. of prodigious uh, slugging and scoring. So, I mean, it just must have blown everybody's uh minds knowing what the White Sox were. Of course, we're still, again, just coming out of the Dick Allen and, and Bill Melton era, but still uh, the rest of the squad wasn't necessarily doing that. And you've pointed out so many guys in double figure uh, home runs for the White Sox. And again, to, to some degree, no name guys or transitional you know, guys, guys who no one really thought were necessarily going to stick around for the long term. Uh, the rent a player. So uh, certainly a, a shock and a surprise. The season doesn't end. Um, Terribly well. White Sox fall to third place. They'll still uh, squeeze out the 90 wins. So ultimately, the legacy isn't the best, even though a beacon on an island in, in what was a, a pretty rough decade or so transitioning from pre-VAC to post-VAC with the White Sox, a pretty tumultuous 70s decade for the team. Um, How about story you know, it's, it's Sure. Yeah, let, lay something on me. Your, your, your guy, Chet, told me this one. Chet may have been the best center fielder in the league. It was probably him and Fred Lynn were considered the best center fielders. Now, with all respect, Ralph Gar in left and Ritzy Zisk in right, they were okay. I mean, if the ball was hit generally within a few feet of them, you know, they're going to make the catch. But they are not going to roam into the alleys to try and take away hits. That was all Chet. Chet was telling me about the time, and again, he said he wished he had the video of this. They're playing at Comiskey Park. It's a very windy night. The batter, I think he said it was against the Brewers, hits a ball in the center, like into right center field. So Zisk is coming over. Chet's coming over. Chet calls for the ball. So Zisk backs off. And Chet says the ball gets caught in the wind, and it starts curving and curving and curving toward the right field line. And Zisk is nowhere to be found right now. Yeah. So it's all up to Chet. He said <laughs> he he makes a diving catch and slides across the right field foul line <laughs> on a ball that started out in right center field. He says he gets up, he's got chalk all over him, and Zisk is just laughing his rear end off in right field. <laughs> <laughs> and it's worth noting for sure. Um, uh, Chet obviously covered ground, huge center field for him to cover. Corner outfielders like we see at the White Sox now where uh, uh, Luis River is a guy who can maybe cover line to line because he sort of has to, uh, but broke I believe Dom DiMaggio, one of the DiMaggio's uh, record for um, putouts and total chances in a season in 77. And that record has not been broken yet. Now, maybe they don't build center fields like they do at Old Comiskey Park any longer. So it's going to be a hard one to break. But yeah, Chet Lemon covered some ground. That's a great story that I was not aware of. And wouldn't it be uh, incredible to see that footage, to see a center fielder (laughs) sliding across the foul line, making it, making a, a dramatic catch, by the way, not just sprinting it out. Uh, yeah. Meanwhile, the, uh, the beer barrel uh, poker, uh, polka right fielder is just sort of laughing his butt off because it's like, yeah, better you than me. That's what the, we see with the wet sex right now. And, sure. and Luis, it's like, yeah, you should take the ball. Hey, my, you my called club it. is made more out of stone. Chet, you, you know, called the ball. Catch called it. It. <laughs> take it. <laughs> That's how it works. Yeah. Um, 
yeah, other other thoughts on the yeah, I don't know the 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 legacy of this team. The, Obviously, the White Sox thought they had a better shot at uh, even maybe bringing Oscar Gamble back at least, and that sort of fell. Well, they had a deal Diego. with him. They actually had a deal with him. Bill Veck thought they had a deal with Gamble, and then at the last minute, the Padres stepped in and made a better offer. Gamble had not signed the contract yet, so he took the better offer which led to Bill making the deal with the Angels for Bobby Bonds. He was trying to replace Ziskin Gamble in 78 with another big hitter, and that did not work out. The White Sox were something like 9-21 and 21 in May of 78 when Bonds was traded to the Angels. At least the White Sox got Rich Dotson out of that deal. Yep. But the problem with the deal for Bonds was Vec gave up Ryan Downing who turned out to be a really solid long-term mm -hmm. major league player first as a catcher mm -hmm. and then as a left fielder with the angels. Mm -hmm. So yeah, the, yeah. the fallout from Zisk leaving and Zisk was never close to the best of my knowledge to even considering re-signing with the White Sox, but gamble, they thought they had a deal with him. And yeah. at the last minute, again, it just, the Padres stepped in, gave him a better offer. He went to San Diego and, did not have anywhere near close to the year that he had with the White Sox. Yeah, and certainly not to diss Oscar. You gotta you gotta take what you can get, but contrast that with say Jermaine sure. Dye, who uh, prior to two thousand five uh, did same scenario, got a better deal after he had agreed. Yes, uh, you know at least verbally with Ken Williams, and in in Dye's case, he chose to honor his uh, word. Now, granted, he might not have had as astronomically better an offer as I presume Oscar uh, did, but. Uh, yeah, you know, just different ways to go about it. And of course, you know, Jermaine Dye is already a millionaire. Uh, so, you know, I mean, maybe there's just uh Well, same thing too with Jeff there. Same thing with Jeff. When Jeff was forced out by Ron Schuler, his White Sox manager, he had agreed to a deal with the Mets. Jeff told me 30 minutes after he agreed to the deal, he got a call <laughs> from the Yankees saying they were firing Stump Merrill and wanted him to take the job. And Jeff said, I can't, I gave my word to the yeah. Mets. So yeah. it is nice to know that there still are some people out there in sports yeah. whose word actually means something. Yeah. Uh, some of the other moves uh, as they try to roll out uh, Heeman and, and Beck um, rent a player again for 78 didn't work as, as well. Uh, obviously the, no. the Bobby Bonds though on paper, uh, could have been really sweet, just just didn't click at all. And, you know, Bobby, you know, it just might have been one of his, uh, you know, lower moments as a, as a professional, as an adult. Uh, he obviously was battling through a number of different struggles as a player. It's sort of remarkable. He put up uh, extraordinary numbers uh, given some of the, uh, you know, the demons that were chasing him. Uh, but uh, Ron Blomberg, um, of course, this oh, was yeah. a big bat uh, brought in. And um, had yeah. another guy, I believe, who hadn't played the previous season. And he missed the Eric Soderholm magic did not happen. Oh, two seasons. He missed the previous so two So they could not duplicate. He completely yeah. destroyed his lower leg, crashing into an outfield fence in 76 I th or 75. And he missed two years. Bill signed him to a no-cut contract. And Bloomberg had a big home run on opening day of 1978, yeah. but he did yeah, very little uh, after yeah. that. Bobby yeah. Bonds only had two home runs with the White Sox and I think 19 RBIs before he was traded right before Memorial Day to Texas. It, you know, it just did not work out. Steve Stone 
came back. Uh, I believe Steve told the story where because Bill and Roland had some faith in him and gave him a nice contract for 1977, even though he was a free agent for 78, mm -hmm. he said, you showed some faith in me. I will come back for one more year. He didn't have quite as good a year as he did in 77, mm -hmm. but he stayed true to his word. And you have to give the man credit right. for that. He came back. Yeah, I want to say Right. I want to say that even Steve in 79, when it was pretty clear, okay, now, now you sort of fulfilled your beyond your moral obligation. I still believe he took his deal that he would move to and shopped it back to the Sox to say, Hey, listen, I can, you know, I can stay here. And of course, you know, by that time, Beck says, Hey, listen, that's the money you got to go get. We can't do it. Right. Um, go to so, Baltimore you know, and win uh, the Cy Young Award in 1980. Right. <laughs> sure. Bye. <laughs> yeah, it just in 78 yeah. you know again they caught lightning in a bottle sometimes it happens just like the 1990 team and again like we said at the top brett that's one of the reasons why this is a beloved team yeah the underdogs they gave everybody a great summer you know and and they're fondly remembered even though it's been 46 years which is still mind-blowing <laughs> Ah, uh, yes. We're going to have to take next week off because uh, Mark's going to have to recover from the fact that, yes, indeed, uh, the season of our youth is uh, is in the rearview mirror, no doubt about it. But, uh, yeah, obviously near and dear uh, to me and to both of us, um, and it's been fun to reminisce uh, some on with you, Mark. We do not have um, – we don't have our pick of seasons where there's this magic. It's not the only one, but this certainly stands out as uh, as really one of the remarkable – surprise just real delights yes. uh everything that sort of makes you fall in love with baseball was wrapped up into 1977 including even you know nancy faust really becoming a national star with uh what what great work she'd been doing for years but was finally getting recognized really became a rallying point for the team which they were smart enough to hold on to for decades to come not not long enough but um still held on to for decades to come uh playing and remember uh, engaging with the and remember the Egg McMuffin game. <laughs> For folks who don't sure. know, all right, let's we can wrap it up with this. Sure, May, let's set it up with breakfast. Yeah, in, in May, Bill Vec <laughs> got a promotional tie-in with McDonald's restaurants, which were unveiling the Egg McMuffin. So the White Sox actually started their game that Saturday against the Cleveland Indians at 10.30 in the morning. And everybody got free Egg McMuffins who came to the game. I remember asking Eric Soderholm about that. I said, did you guys take batting practice? He basically said, are you crazy at 8 o'clock in the morning? <laughs> lucky to go. <laughs> he said, we just showed up. And the funny yeah, thing is, they showed up and won 18-2. That was the, the game, the first game where Jim Spencer had mm -hmm. the eight RBIs tying mm -hmm. the team record. He would later do it again, that series against the Twins in early July. But, yeah, these guys had no batting practice, probably very little sleep because it was a night game that Friday night. They show up for a 1030 in the morning game and score 18 runs. Yeah. That was Muscle the memory. 1977 White Sox. Yeah, there you go. Exactly. Great point. That really is. Roll out of bed, <laughs> maybe make it to the park on time, and just yep. mash hell out of the ball for sure. Yeah. 
Uh, well, it's been fun, Mark. Thank you for doing this with Thank me. You. Uh, Mark obviously is going to be our uh, Dish Deluxe staple. We're going to bring in uh, different folks from uh, Southside Sox to uh, address games that very likely they've been at or maybe near and dear to them. Hey, listen, I was near and dear to me. June 4th, 1977, that ball just disappeared, Mark. And ever since, I've just been, my mouth is agape about the White Sox for entirely different reasons this you summer. Know, do you remember Mark, who we hit it off of? Um, Don't look. No, I know. It's not Gullet. Um, yes, it was. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I knew Yankees. Yeah. Don Gullet. How about that? And then he also he hit a bleacher shot home run the same year yeah. off of Dave Rosema of the Tigers. He's the only yeah, even more rare, really. Do that. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't have the romance of the roof, but more rare. Yeah, yeah, a rooftop home run and a shot into the center field bleachers in the same season. Dick Allen did it, but he did it in two separate seasons. The mm -hmm. center field shot was in '72. The the uh, rooftop home run was in '73. So yeah, yeah. Is this kind of nice year. Rooftops, center fields, and breakfast games uh 1977 had it all we who knows i mean knowing me we'll somehow find a reason to revisit it like in two weeks but at least until then uh on behalf of mark liptak i'm Thanks, Brett. addressing white Sox history and we will be back at you talking more history some other interesting wrinkle might be bad might be good probably sooner than you're ready but uh hold on to your hats we got more coming your way <laughs>